Welcome to Public Historians at Work, a podcast series from the Center for Public History at the University of Houston. I'm Dr. Monica Perales, Associate Professor of History and Director of CPH. In this podcast series, we speak with academics, artists, activists, and community members about what it means to do history and humanities work for and with the public. In our second season, we're examining public history as it relates to medicine, health, and the well-being of our global community. For more resources on these topics and ways to support the mission of CPH, make sure to check us out at uh.edu slash class slash CPH or find us on Facebook and Twitter at UHCP History. Together, we can help reclaim our past. What does a millennia-old plague have to do with the current COVID-19 pandemic? In this episode, recorded on May 11, 2022, Dr. Christina Neumann sits down with Drs. Merle Eisenberg and Lee Mordecai, medieval historians, and hosts of the podcast Infectious Historians. Now with over 100 episodes, this dynamic series engages past disease outbreaks and contemporary questions through a series of interviews with historians, scientists, and public policy experts. Doctors Eisenberg and Mordecai dissect their process and vision for the podcast, specifically how it serves as an interdisciplinary seminar and living archive for academic and public audiences alike. They discuss the bad historical comparisons for disease that often spread throughout our culture and the social responsibility of historians to correct these narratives. Most importantly, they emphasize the use of history to remind everyone that human beings matter in a pandemic. Let's listen in. I'm joined today by Merle Eisenberg and Lee Mordecai. Welcome. It's so nice to see both of you again. Thanks so much for having us on. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be on. I knew that we had to talk further when I learned about your joint podcast, Infectious Historians. Not only is the name fantastic, so is the concept. Basically, you cover historical pandemics and historical ideas about pandemic, disease, and plague, and how they play out in real time during COVID. I saw that you just celebrated your two-year anniversary with 89 episodes and a lot of topics and different scholars. So I want to take you back to the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin story of this podcast? So to share the foundation myth of this podcast. So it really started at the beginning of COVID. And I think it was in March 2020, sometime mid or late March 2020, when we realized that COVID was actually a big Thing it's which is going to be going to become bigger very quickly, and we wanted to somehow engage with the broader community, right? So for both the broader scholarly community, the, the broader public as well. We felt that we, as historians working on pre-modern diseases, had something to say, or had knowledge that would be of interest to a broader audience. And I remember we kind of considered several different opportunities of what we might want to do. And podcasting was new to both of us. Neither of us has, has ever done something like that before, but it seemed good. It seemed like a good idea, a good, good opportunity to, to get into that. So, so that's how we started. I mean, the early episodes were just the two of us kind of fumbling around. It was a lot of fumbling around, a lot of recording of, of the same episode multiple times. 
But I think that in, after, let's say, three or four episodes, we really got into, into a rhythm that lasted for over a year and a half, I'd say. Yeah, I'll just add, give Lee credit for coming up with the name. I don't remember how he came up with it, but he should get the credit for the name because everyone likes it. I do think it's a good name. So kudos to you, Lee. Probably the only time I'll praise him on this podcast. As <laughs> listeners of our podcast will know, it's usually me mocking him. <laughs> Thank you, Merle. I, I appreciate that. Well, and two years on, what are some of the lessons in terms of the format, in terms of the the structure of podcasting have you learned? Yeah. I mean, I'll say this, as Lee already mentioned, the bar is quite low to get into it, but it's quite steep in the beginning. So I think I read somewhere that most podcasts don't last more than 10 episodes. I don't know where I read that, but that people kind of burn out pretty quickly. Because the editing, the sound stuff, the acoustics, what works, what doesn't work is actually really difficult in the beginning. But once you get into it, I, I would say that it's a pretty doable format. As long as you get a mic, you get a nice you know, pair of headphones, or in Lee's case, a pink mic and a cheap pair of headphones <laughs> that seems to still work. But I, I think what's really key for our podcast, one thing that you know we aim to do is we really try to bring a diversity of guests from different time periods different geographical places, and the guests themselves from as diverse backgrounds as possible, where they come from, where they teach, where they learn, age, gender, race, all these things play. And so we really try to get a real grand diversity of people in the podcast, which is something that I think we've aimed for more and more as it's gone along. And so in terms of topics, you do cover a wide range, right? So you started off with the Justinianic plague, then there was some Black death, but then you've expanded to syphilis, Ebola, vaccinations, historical methodologies, and even zombie films. What I thought was interesting, you're not just talking to historians, you're talking to sociologists, public scientists, and policy influencers. Over the course of the 89 episodes, what were some of your favorite or even surprising episodes? We have some running jokes in in the podcast. One is, I mean, we keep returning to certain epidemics. Our, our favorite is the Justinianic plague, which we always go back to that. But also some movies, Outbreak and Contagion are, are the two which, which we usually get, go back to. Broadly speaking, I would say that the more memorable episodes were actually the non-historians, at least for me, right? Because the historians are more similar to each other. But when we brought in a virologist, for example, or a films expert, that's like completely different. And the way I treat it as a scholar who's doing quote unquote public history is really to think of this as a seminar, the seminar of two people that Merle and I are the only only active participants who can ask questions in the seminar. But you get the seminar once a week or once every couple of weeks, and you get to, to listen to an expert in their field, which whether academic or maybe non-academic, we had non-academics as well. We had policy people, journalists, and so on. And that was very insightful just to pick their brains. I mean, yes, it's recorded, but I don't mind. I mean, it's it's interesting for me as a scholar, a public historian. One thing that always surprises me, and I'll echo Lee's point, that I think podcasts are a great way to basically have a seminar, right? This has informed my teaching, my research, right? You basically have to do prep work, so you have to read their work. So, you know, we're all busy, we're all in our little niche field, and we don't have time to read other stuff. And this really gives you the opportunity to read really broadly. But what I'll say is there's always a gap between what you read, how you think the episode is going to go, 
and how the episode actually goes, because people are really willing often to take it in whatever direction possible. To point out a couple episodes that, you know, maybe I'll point your listeners to is my favorite involving Lee actually is with my former roommate from DC and college friend, AJ Herman, who until very recently was actually director of policy for the mayor of Kansas City, Missouri. So he was describing how COVID policy worked in Kansas City. And as listeners are probably aware, Kansas City is is right on the border with Kansas and Missouri. So there's Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri. So they could only do policy for Missouri. So he was describing how, you know, it didn't matter if they put in mask mandates or even if they wanted to try a vaccine mandate, which I don't think they were allowed to do, that you could literally just go across the street and none of it would necessarily be in effect. So I think this blew Lee's mind in terms of how federalism works in the United States. So I remember that was one of my favorite episodes with Lee, just because I think he finally understood U.S. governance at the time. What I've noticed as an ancient historian behind the scenes on this podcast is this idea that you get to step outside of your niche field. And I love the ability to step into the modern world. Yeah. And I, I would say that when you think about it from that perspective, the costs of stepping out of your field are very low when you're, when, once you're podcasting, right? I mean, you read something, you have a better or less or, or lesser understanding of whatever you read, and then you just talk to a person. I mean, comparing that to other opportunities that I've had in my professional career, so to speak, I can't think of any other place where, again, I could just sit with a person completely out of my field, them being very generous with their time and me asking whatever I'm interested in. I mean, that, that's what the episode is, really is for me. Especially during the first, I would say, year, year and a half of COVID, people were really, really generous with their time, right? I mean, you would approach big name scholars in field that we don't work on and say, hey, do you want to come on? And they would say, sure, not a problem. And so that was really wonderful to see. And my other favorite guest was Mike Van, who does podcasts himself, actually. So he has a great deep podcasting voice. I can't do a Mike Van impression, but he wrote a graphic history called The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt. And it's probably the best book. It's a little graphic history, right? So it's something students really like. And it does a great job with imperialism, colonialism, about turn of the 20th century Vietnam, about economics, and about Foucault, even, for example. And so I always assign this book now because it's just a wonderful piece and it really appeals to students. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's what I've noticed, too, is it's the kind of this resource gathering, right? And the fact that you have it in one place. And that brings up another question or something I wanted you all to talk about. One of the things that I love about the podcast is that you end every episode with a check-in in terms of where the two of you are at in the world and what life looks like from your perspective. And so as I was going back through listening to the podcast from the last two years, I was struck by, as historians, you have actually created a historical record of sorts of two historians of disease experiencing COVID as it's happening. Your introductory episode was recorded on March 27, 2020, at the very beginning of the pandemic. And again, it struck me because, Lee, you were in self-quarantine in Israel because of an exposure. Merle, you were in a postdoc at the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center. Then fast forward two years later, and your latest episode, you were together for the very first time in person at a conference in Princeton. So did you set out to create this type of historical record? Or what has it been like 
thinking about this historical record of, of the last two years that you've created? So I vaguely remember that that was part of the plan. I mean, to, to create some kind of self-archive of, of what is going on and also emphasizing, I mean, from from the beginning, really, the, the vast differences in how both of us experienced COVID in, in our different places. And sometimes we actually had people either in Merle's area or in my I mean, geographic area who also experienced COVID in a very different way than we did. So that was part of the plan. I've had other people who approached me with exactly the same point of saying, yo, you know, this is really a great archive, or this really reminds me of how COVID used to be back in the old, old 2020 days, right? I have to say that I think Merle has listened to several, maybe maybe many episodes over the years. Some of the early episodes, I have not. I, I, I'm just like, no, I'm, I, I listen to all episodes before we air them, before we actually like upload them to the air. But other than that, I don't think I've listened to any other episode. Yeah, I don't think I've ever listened to any other episode again. Yeah, I have listened to, I think, the first 10 again. And I don't remember why. It might have been because I was just curious if we were any good at it in the beginning. <laughs> and the answer to that was not really. Yeah, I remember the quality was probably horrible compared to the later ones, at least. Yeah, Lee was very concerned about the quality in the beginning. So I think the first episode we did, I think he made us record it like four times, which was not pleasant. But yeah, I mean, I do think you're correct. I mean, I think, you know, I'm podcasting now from my office, which is a fairly restricted space. But I think early on, I remember I had read somewhere that you should podcast in a really restricted space. You know, they were like NPR guys who had been sent home. And so they were doing it from like their closet or something. So I decided I had to imitate this. So I had a kid's tent that we had bought for my kids and I covered it in blankets and did a, an episode from inside the tent. And I just remember my legs fell asleep the whole time and I basically couldn't move and it was super uncomfortable. And I did about an hour and a half from this tent, I remember. And my wife took a photo because she said, this is the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever seen. And I've stopped doing that because I don't think it actually affects the audio quality all that much. But I do think you get a sense of those early days. I remember there was a fox that used to run around my street. And so I talked about the fox from time to time and things like that. But I also think the other thing, Lee, and I don't know if you think about this, but Lee's daughter was born just before COVID, about a month before COVID. And my kids at the time were about a year and a half. And so this is kind of their diary of what they were up to in many ways as well. Now, whether or not my kids will appreciate this or want to listen to it till they're, say, 30 <laughs> is a different discussion because it's not exactly the most flattering image, I think, of one and a half and newborn children. Well, hopefully the podcast will continue to go. And so, you know, you'll be able to have that record, an audio record, or at least some sort of memoir uh, of what they're doing. But having this two years recorded, even if you don't go back and listen to those episodes, as historians of disease and pandemic, Having talked to all these people, do you think about pandemic differently? Oh, for sure. I mean, that, that, that there's, there's no question about that. I mean, trying to reflect on how I thought when we started, I mean, I, I'll speak for myself. I think my understanding of other diseases, other epidemics, pandemics was very limited. I mean, neither of us was trained to do this. I mean, we kind of slowly transitioned into working on the Justinianic plague as a side project for both of us. And that's more or less everything I knew when we started. So this has been a huge learning experience for me. I feel much more comfortable now 
speaking about pandemics, epidemics more generally, speaking out as a historian on these issues with the media, for example. I don't think I would have done any of this without the podcast. The readings, the discussions that we've had. I mean, again, if you think about it as a seminar, this is basically what, like four or five semesters, right, of seminars that we keep on taking. So you do learn much more about this. So yes, my, my, my thought has definitely changed has impacted my teaching, my research, for sure. Yeah. You know, I've come to the realization, not surprisingly, over the course of the podcast, that for good, obvious reasons, most academics, right, work in their time period or work in their geography, and that people are approaching similar topics, similar ideas, similar questions, but they're obviously not talking to each other. So someone who works on 19th century Hawaii, for example, and Native American indigenous pandemics that happened, right? A lot of those questions are actually quite similar to people who work on the Justinianic plague or the Black Death or how that historiography has developed is quite similar. And no one on any side really knows that or talks to each other. And so that's been, you know, the benefit of, say, working with Seth Archer, who works on Hawaii, just talking to him and kind of learning about that process. Well, on that, in your introduction to the podcast, you do talk about how the last two years of COVID have led to a general interest, an explosion of general interest in past pandemics. And so not just within the academic world are these conversations, but but the wider public is hungry for discussing these. And you state that one of the goals of the podcast was to make academic information more accessible to a broader audience. And, and Merle, you have this great moment in one of the episodes where you say, quote, I don't see a difference between academic and popular interest in terms of many of the questions that society more broadly has, even if they're expressed differently. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about the value that you see in this kind of public outreach generally and through podcasting specifically? Yeah, you know, I think popular culture, whatever that means, and academic questions are very much intertwined and related to each other, right? So the ways in which you might ask the questions and the nuance might be different, but the interest is certainly there. Using Lee's favorite pandemic that we've talked about already, which is the Justinianic plague, no one was really writing about this or thinking about this till the late 90s, early 2000s. There was a big gap between that and much earlier periods of the 20th century. Well, that's the same exact gap of interest in general disease movies and in general disease popular culture as well across you know American culture, which I can speak about, I guess, in detail. We might have other thoughts on Israel. And so what you see is clearly people are learning, asking questions about similar topics. And again, the question is how they ask those questions, what the nuance is, but how people are learning about it, how people are thinking are intertwined and kind of built together. And so I don't see a difference between popular culture and academic culture in terms of interests. Again, it's in terms of how you ask the questions, the nuance, this types of uh, information. This explosion of interest comes from COVID or did you see, you know, I noticed in some of your work, you talk about the rise of Hollywood films. And so do you see the interest actually preceding the COVID or is it because of COVID that you see this greater explosion? It's both. So the trend starts somewhere, let's say in the mid nineties, as Merle said earlier, there's this, an increase, a continuous increase if from then until let's say 2020. And it really explodes during COVID. So it, it, it mm-hmm. comes to the fore like it never did before. 
I mean, before that, he had other cases, right? He had the SARS, he had the swine flu. Those were much shorter and, and it kind of got back to the general uptrend. But COVID really changed things, I think, mm-hmm. at, the, at least at the beginning. I think things have cooled off now. This, these, let's say, past few months, past few to several months, I think there are other other issues of interest on the, on, on the news agenda right now. Uh, so attention is moving away from COVID, but I mean, who knows what what will happen in the future? And I think that I find it difficult to see how the broad trend is going to change in, in, the, in the foreseeable future. Yeah, I'll just add Lee's favorite anecdote slide, which is he likes to show if you look in Web of Science, which is one of these giant search engines for all scientific publications, if you look for the term infectious disease, right? There's a slow increase over the late 90s, or there's a slow increase over the late 80s, obviously due to HIV and AIDS, and then a massive uptick in the 90s, and then it kind of keeps going up. And obviously COVID has increased that, as Lee pointed out, exponentially, but it's still an ongoing trend of what has really interested people. Just a few numbers. I mean, we're talking about, let's say between the mid 90s, broadly speaking, and 2020, 2021, we're talking about a 20 time increase in the amount of articles coming out, cataloged in, the, in this uh, this big database. Mm-hmm. Well, so what has been the public response then to your podcast? How are people engaging then with the information that you're providing? So I, it's hard to say, right? So I have a lot of anecdotes, but broadly speaking, it's very idiosyncratic. So a student might come up to me. I don't, I don't advertise this with my students or anything like that, right? But a student might come to me or some person in my university might come to me out of the blue and say, oh, you know, I, I listened to your podcast. Thanks for that. And those people obviously like whatever we do and continue to engage with that. Every once in a while, we get emails from either listeners or sometimes even presses that want to get us interested in maybe a specific book or a specific idea, whether they wrote or whether they know someone else who might be interested in coming on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I think those have actually been very helpful because partially because what Merle said earlier, that the siloed nature of many of these fields of study within academia I mean, when we started off, right? So who did we know? We knew like our friends. We knew maybe a few names of people that we read or we wanted to, to bring on. But looking back, I, I think it's, it was hard for us. In a sense, it still is hard for us to understand how much is out there, right? It's, it's like a huge field of scholarship or a huge discipline. And how are you supposed to like know what are the hot topics? What do, what do people work on? What is feasible for you to, to bring someone to speak on? Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of those have really kind of broken new ground for us. And one of the things that we tend to do in most, if not all cases, is to just ask whoever comes on the podcast for accommodations for other people. And I think until now, we usually get completely new names. So people we never heard of, ideas that we never had. So that that has been very helpful in that sense. I agree with Lee that it's hard to quantify. I mean, you can get quantifiable numbers, right? Which we have, and I'm sure you have, and other podcasts do. You know, we're not NPR, we're not New York Times, right? So we're not getting up in those numbers. But I will say, you know, in terms of who listens to us, that you know, the average academic monograph gets a couple hundred people if they're lucky to read it, and each one of our episodes certainly surpasses that readership, 
right? So in that sense, it's a larger audience than most scholars get. And, you know, the two groups, I guess I'm most proud of in terms of who listens is one, when we get emails and uh, other tweets and this type of stuff from natural scientists, right? Because I worked at the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center, as you mentioned, which is a nice mouthful and actually Lee did as well. And there we were the only social scientists, right? If we even want to count as that and humanities people, certainly. And so in that sense, I really got a sense of what it is to work with biologists and geographers and all these different types of fields and how what I think our podcast offers above all else to them. And they pointed this out to us is, you know, that human beings matter in a pandemic, Mm -hmm. right? Which is an obvious point to say now, but if you think about it, all models of what was going to happen to COVID or what might've happened are based on basically just biological factors alone, right? How many people get sick, how many people are infected, how many people recover, and how many people die. As if human beings basically are these black boxes that all react the same, which is, as humanities people, we would all say that's kind of ridiculous. And every human acts differently, and then different groups of people act similarly differently, and you're affected by a disease based on a whole range of factors, gender, race, socioeconomic status, et cetera. So that's one audience I'm particularly proud of is that we bring this to natural scientists. And the other group is we do get emails, or at least I get people telling me offhand that they use the podcast episodes in their teaching, right? So instead of maybe teaching the Justinianic plague, they just give them our podcast, right? And we can see that in the data, right? It'll spike to several hundred on a really old episode, which is why I think Lee is probably most angry about that Justinianic plague one, because I know a number of classes who assign it. And since our first episode, it's like the most raw at the end of the day. (laughs) Both of those audiences, I found in my own work that although there might be a perceived divide between humanities and STEM, as I continue working with data scientists, visualizations, et cetera. They're so glad to be working with humanities people for the tools that we can provide for bringing back the humanity to the data. And so it's it's really interesting to hear how your podcast can also serve in that same role. Yeah. And I would just add that, you know, people have come on our podcast and noted that exact point. I think it was Rich McKay who works on HIV and AIDS in the 80s and was telling us about the UK modeling for COVID early on for large outbreaks, I believe were based on schools rather than nursing homes, which is obviously what was actually struck. And thus, if your model says it's all kids, that's going to be a very different impact, as we know, quite rightly about COVID from uh, people who are much older. And so things like that are really important, I think, to bring to policymakers as well. That reminds me of another thing that I noted in your joint work together. You talk about A lot of even the scholarly publications and then some of the more popular publications really seem focused on correcting narratives outside of the history field. And I was really struck by how both of you are engaging public audiences as well as scientific audiences. And in one article where you mention the Justinianic plague, and it looks like it's a response to somebody who had read one of your articles You talk about not only what new evidence tells us, but again, you're confronting the need of historians to speak outside of the history field. And you write, quote here, as for publishing, it is our responsibility to engage and educate broader audiences through some of our research. Whether we like it or not, publications within history receive little attention from scientists or the broader public. 
This leaves plenty of room for non-specialists to establish their own narratives and influence these audiences. And specifically, you take on some of the false narratives perpetuated in popular media about the Justinianic plague and its faulty equation to the current COVID-19 pandemic or its possible uh, relationships. So some of the false narratives about the plague and bringing it forward. So can you both walk us through this problem and how you're leveraging your platform as historians to help correct these narratives and engage with these wider audiences? So I could start by emphasizing that there are, let's say, two broad models through which you could, or through broad paradigms through which you could see academia, right? One is academia as an ivory tower. And I think that too many of us historians still subscribe to that view, whether because they prefer that view, whether it's because they are uncertain about how to reach out or, or, or try reaching out to the broader audiences outside the ivory tower. I don't think that's sustainable anymore. And I think that the scientists, for all their faults, and they have faults, we have faults, and no, no one's perfect here, right? But the scientists have, have realized far be, before us that that's just not a sustainable model in the 21st century. So breaking out of the ivory tower is really our responsibility, as, as in the quote you mentioned, right? If we won't do this, other people will do that. And it's not, a, it's not an if, right? It, it's already happening around us. And that brings me to the second point, which is when Merle and I started, and that's what I thought before we started, before we actually started working on uh, on epidemics more broadly, our understanding of of an epidemic was relatively naive, right? As this event of mass death, killing people all over the place, it was very catastrophic in nature, our, our understanding. And as we kind of delved into the details of the Justinianic plague, again, because that's what we researched, we realized that, you know, it's actually much more nuanced. It's actually much less clear than these grand narratives want to tell us. These grand narratives that are very attractive for a good reason. I mean, educated people in developed societies, we like to tell ourselves these very catastrophic, apocalyptic even narratives, right? I mean, these are the zombie films that you mentioned. Why are zombies so popular now? Why, why, why do we like imagining the end of the world? So what we noticed is that these narratives in the present, and this also goes back to Merle's point about uh, popular versus academic. So in the popular sphere, outside academia, these narratives were getting a lot of attention, right? A lot of popularity, really. That popularity percolated back into academia, right? So if you look at how historians looked at the Justinianic plague, let's say over the past 50 years or so, there's, it's an increasing graph. Over these 50 years, the Justinianic plague has been seen as being more lethal as, as modern time moves on. It's been seen as affecting a broader area, broader geographical area, and lasting for longer. So why is that the case? I mean, again, we don't really have new evidence, right? It's in reinterpreting old evidence with the, the possible exception of DNA, which we can get to, but I'm not sure that's really relevant here. So what Merle and I wanted to do is really to try to fix this or, or, or at least present a different narrative. I think if we would have gone on, on the, like the, the bandwagon of, oh, you know, the, let's treat all these diseases as apocalyptic and, and emphasize symptoms and mortality and how horrible this all was, I guess our, our podcast would have been more popular, maybe not, still not NPR levels, but definitely more popular than, than it is now. 
But I think that would be a misservice to the field and the broader public because it's very easy to go to, to fall back on these uh, catastrophic narratives. Whereas I think reality, just as we see with COVID, right? So yes, it is catastrophic for some people, but other people are actually having a, a great time during COVID for whatever reasons. Again, we, we can discuss the details, but experiences are much more nuanced than what our stereotypical view of a disease was, at least before COVID. I think hopefully now that will change a bit because of COVID, but we saw and still see it as our responsibility. And we can, we, we have the knowledge to, to, to say something meaningful about this, this perception, this stereotypical perception. I'll just add kind of two additional points. One is, as you pointed out, you know, if you cast your mind back to January, February, 2020, right? When people were making assumptions, thoughts on what COVID was or wasn't going to be, the narratives they were using were deeply problematic ones about the 1918 influenza pandemic or the Black Death, right? You know, my favorite too about the Black Death, I guess favorite, I should say in quotes, were that it was going to lead to some kind of renaissance, right? That we were all going to be somehow made better. We'd have nicer art, I guess, I guess is part of the thing. And then the other one, which I think was walked back pretty quickly, was that wealth inequality was going to be reduced, right? That was actually a big one early on in COVID because that's what it supposedly happened in all pandemics. Now, there's problems with the sources and the information there, but you can see where those narratives kind of get you carried on and how that gets used or misused if it's deeply problematic. The second thing I'll say, which has come up a lot on our podcast when it comes to you know, a public-facing audience, I think, is the need for historians to do some of the legwork that Lee has pointed out that natural scientists have done, which is to say, make networking connections, which is a long-term process with policymakers, with other people working in the policy world. And two is learning how to market and publicize and do press on your own work. And this is something we had started before COVID. And I think it's actually super important because as Lee said, and we all teach, right? I mean, when your students want to know about something, right? No matter how many times you teach them, you know, don't just go Google and pull the first thing you're going to find. They all Google and pull the first thing they can find. And the first thing they find is, you know, a really nice, slick, well done, expensive video about the Black Death or the Justinianic Plague or the 1918 influenza pandemic which is going to be better produced, better created, better content than anything any of us will do because we just don't have that skill set. But we can build the skill set or build collaborations to work with those people to make that more approachable. And that's something I think we need certainly more of and is something that I think over the course of the podcast, having talked to people who have some of those skills or have thought about that is something that we really need to bring to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's breaking out of that traditional model of how we always done things. And I, I appreciate you confirming that that traditional model is not sustainable in this world. It, it just doesn't work. <laughs> I will say the downside to it is Lee and I both started this and still are untenured academics, right? And so you have the obvious challenge, which no one can resolve and I won't resolve in my lifetime if I want to keep my job. And same thing with Lee, I imagine, which is, you know, you still have to produce what the History Academy assumes you will produce and the podcast, what it counts for becomes a more mixed question. I would even say that the podcast doesn't count for much within academia, right? So it's, oh, it's like a nice side project, right? I mean, I don't think anyone would say don't do it, but when, when it comes to promotion, tenure, I mean, 
anything like that, it counts for very little if, if I'm optimistic, right? But again, I, I see this as my social responsibility. I mean, I I have a skill set, I have knowledge, I have connections, I've been privileged enough with, with my training and, and all these things. So I would say that the least I can do, especially in this like worldwide pandemic that we're all living through, is to to reach out and connect and make as much as a difference I can, mm-hmm. which may or may not be big, but I mean, again, it's it's much better than I would do had I only like taught and, and wrote to, to my friends and students, basically. Having gone through your podcast, two things strike me. Number one, the tremendous research value, right? Again, having almost this archive of conversations, again, as a pandemic is happening with experts within the field, right? So I just think about the research value there, but then also the service model. And I don't think we often talk about this uh, in the academic world as much as we should, right? That we are in service to the world around us. And you talked about the topic a little bit, but back in February of 2020, you did publish this joint editorial in the Washington Post where you talked about the danger of just letting these narratives run. So not engaging the public with these narratives. And the article itself is titled, Why Treating the Coronavirus Like the Black Death is So Dangerous. And you write, quote, panicking that new diseases will unfold like previous ones, generate inaccurate history and unnecessary fear in the present, sometimes with serious consequences. And the article goes on to talk about this outbreak narrative, which which you've discussed a little bit already. But it occurs to me that this is this is the reason we need to be doing this work. There is a necessity of historians and, and an actual real danger if we don't engage in these topics. I mean, this goes to the heart of the question of how human beings think, which I am long a proponent of, not my idea, by any stretch of the imagination, that humans think in stories, right? And that you need to grasp onto narratives to try to make sense of what's happening to you. And two of the ones that I think Lee and I noticed early on in those first three months or four months or so of 2020 were history, which was actually quite prominent. I mean, there was op-eds across the world, basically, not just us, and also actually film, right? I mean, everyone seemed to want to watch Contagion, which I've read many reasons why people wanted to watch Contagion. I have no idea why anyone wanted to watch Contagion because I certainly did not. And I'd seen the film maybe 10 times already. You know, I was reading actually Nancy Toms's Gospel of Germs, which is about the early 20th century and how people began to modify their behavior culturally, often led by women in terms of how they thought about dirt, you know, disease germs. And I had to put it down for, I think, three months. I just couldn't read it for all of February and March because I was like, why would I want to read about this when, you know, again, if you think back to some of the points that people were doing, right, at least I was. I was wiping down groceries with bleach because we were told that, right, it would last on packages for up to three days. So people were crazy about this. I think Lee was less crazy than me, certainly. Although he was trapped in his home by the police and wasn't allowed out. And they came and like checked on you for like every day, right? No, they, they came several times. Once actually while I was teaching on Zoom. So so there was a police officer that <laughs> knocked on the door outside and they wanted to see me that, that I'm actually in there. So my my spouse told them that I'm teaching. They were not okay with that. So I had to like stop class teaching on zoom, go outside and show them that I'm still there. I mean, they were like all masked and like with, with 
the entire suit and everything. But yeah, that 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 definitely happened. Yeah, Merle, you you did take things more serious, but you also flew much much sooner than I did. I mean, I took like two years to start flying. For you, it was several months, and I do remember that you were like you had like three masks on. I mean, you you kind of reject that story, but you still had two masks on and like a regular mask on, right? Like the regular eye mask on. Yeah, I was wearing an eye mask too, but that's because I was trying to sleep. But I was double masking on a plane. But this was over a year after the pandemic. But to to go back to your point, yeah, so we wrote this op-ed. I mean, it came out just after Lee and I and a few other colleagues had published an article in a science journal, um, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, using quantitative data sets to look at the Justinianic Plague, which actually got fairly robust press because we did a whole press plan and these types of things, um, as I was mentioning. And to her credit, my older sister said, you know, why don't you guys write something more public facing about your work and how, you know, we need to be careful with how we think about COVID now. And it's certainly true then and it's true now, which is we didn't know that much about COVID at the time. Now we know quite a bit and how these things changed the stories we were grasping onto were really very often problematic in the first four or five weeks of 2020. To follow up on that, in retrospect, Merle, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was the only article that we submitted unsolicited, right? The, the only like op-ed that, that we tried to, to get through. And I don't remember it took too much or too long or it being too stressful, but maybe if we hadn't gone the podcast route, we could feasibly do the same thing with op-eds, just like keep on writing these op-eds and commenting on, on whatever's going on around us from a historian's perspective. But for me, I think one of the great things about podcasting is the flexibility that it gives you. And it also is a much more collaborative enterprise than just two or three or four people or the same people, maybe keep on writing like articles or, or op-eds. And so the podcast is, is flexible enough and it's, it's versatile enough. And, and, and again, for me, it's just more interesting to do it that way. You know, as we wrap up our conversation today, do you have any more advice for scholars, for students who want to engage in this public-facing work, and specifically for non-U.S. or pre-modern scholars? I mean, we all met at a medieval economy conference, um, and and I think sometimes there's a there's a conception that public history has to be within a certain century, within a certain location for it to be relevant in the public, for you to be able to engage in this. So how about you all? What what kind of advice do you have? Well, what I would say is that what makes any kind of digital media really wonderful is you're no longer constrained by the local community, right? Which I teach in America, you teach in America, right? Your local community, there isn't a European medieval past, right? There is an American medieval past, if you want to use that term, but there's no European medieval past, which is what I've been trained on. And so it does allow you to do more uh, outreach and to do more work with different groups than you might have imagined. And I think what people really need more of is content that allows them to manipulate it and do it themselves, right? So you can assign, as I said, episodes of our podcast or parts of episodes of our podcast for example, or I've run another website called Middle Ages for Educators, which is all about providing content to college and high school students about the Middle Ages. And so I think all of those are definitely doable. They're all definitely possible. And, you know, they really have a bunch of 
different uh, ways in which they can suit what you want to do. I mean, as listeners probably have gathered, Lee and I have a model of making fun of each other and joking and kind of having a good time, which is the type of podcast I like and I listen to myself, right? But there's a whole bunch of other narrative ones that you could do, right? More long form, this type of stuff, which could easily be done in lieu of, say, you know, a final project in a course, right? Instead of assigning, you know, a paper of 15 pages or something, I always give my students the option of doing a podcast episode of about 15 to 20 minutes, right? And some of them have taken me up on that because that does build a different skill set, which is actually a quite valuable skill set. Editing a podcast is not a lot of fun, as we've talked about, but it is a skill set that you can develop. So I can now edit sound however I want, whenever I want, even if I would prefer not to. Yeah. So my advice, let's say I'll I'll distill it to two pieces. One is maybe to continue or or reiterate something Merle said earlier on. The bar is very low. I mean, it might seem high. It might seem like it's, this is like very complex technology. Things, even during these past two years and definitely much, and this is a trend that started far earlier. It's much, much easier to to do today. I mean, you can literally, with your own laptop, no special equipment, be on the air probably in in an hour, two hours, five hours with content that you're putting out, right? I'm not saying you should do that that quickly. You should probably think, maybe not very carefully, but at least think carefully about what you're doing. But it's far easier than what you think it is or what I thought it is when we started. So that's the first piece of advice. And the other piece of advice is really to step out of the ivory tower as much as you can, everywhere you can, any way you can. Yes, sometimes you'll get some pushback from colleagues, the CIS academia as like a broader institution and so on. But I personally find it much more fulfilling to, to be part of the world in which we live in. I mean, we're, we're not, we shouldn't be locked in the ivory tower. If you're teaching, if you have any teaching opportunities, bring that world in, right? Again, I, I do pre-modern history and I can still do these things. Things such as uh, include video games in, in my teaching, right? I, I teach with Assassin's Creed Odyssey, for example, teach ancient Greek history, uh, use music videos, uh, Ape Shit by Beyonce and Jay-Z. I mean, we analyze that and, and what that tells us about museums and art and, and their ancient art and, and that and it's placed in our world today. So there are all these different opportunities. Look at popular culture. Don't ignore popular culture just because it's 21st century popular culture, right? I mean, for, for us, people working on like Roman or medieval history, popular culture back then was great. We, we, we want more popular culture to, to understand what, I mean, what Romans did, what Greeks did, what medieval people did. So why should we ignore like 20 and 21st century popular culture as being something that, that's like kind of below us? I don't buy that. And, and again, I think the feedback I have received from students has been overwhelmingly positive on these things. They want it. They want to see how our world in the 21st century or the past intersects with our world in the 21st century. And the more I do that in my classes, Again, I'm not giving up on any like rigorous academic skills or anything like that, but that makes classes, exercises so far more dynamic and interesting and also fun for me to teach. I mean, when, when, when I could just show a music video and students really like that or when I, I don't know, show 
a professor, I think, in one of the California universities rapping and rapping the Iliad, right? I mean, that, why not do that? It's, it's, it's not different from, from the work we do generally. And it, again, it's a, it's a way to connect much better to our audiences, whether within academia or outside academia. Yeah, it occurs to me as I hear you both talk that there is so much to be gained and there's so much to be lost if we don't engage. And so so really, you know, I'm, I'm impressed with both of your careers, how you have continued to find these new avenues, new media in order to reach a wider audience. So finally, where can our listeners find out more about your work? Uh, you mentioned several of your different projects. Where can we find out more? So you can find our podcast on infectioushistorians.com. Somehow Lee managed to snag that website. And you can also listen to us on whatever place you actually listen to podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Unless you're my parents, in which case you take your computer and you like play off the website on the middle of the kitchen table, because this is what over 70s do apparently when it comes to listening to podcasts. Yeah. So that's one place for our work. You can also check out, uh, as I said, Middle Ages for Educators, which is, you can just Google it. It's now run out of Princeton, which is where both of us actually did our PhD. So they've housed the website as well. And you can also, if you want to read some of our more academic facing work on uh, academia.edu has most of, at least my papers and probably yours as well, Lee. Yeah. So, so we both have academia.edu pages. We both have Twitter pages. So the podcast doesn't have a separate Twitter page, but Merle, Merle is much more active than I am on my Twitter. So, so a shout out to, to, to Merle there. And as for another public facing project that Christina, you mentioned in, in the conference that we were actually, that we actually met, one of the projects where Merle and I also collaborated on is called Flame. So Framing the Late Antique and Early Medieval Economy looks at, I mean, there's a combination of ancient, the ancient economy or late antique economy, really, uh, digital humanities, and again, public facing because it's it's open access, trying to, to bring more people into these, what used to be very closed discussions. So that's accessible at flame.princeton.edu. Excellent, excellent. Merle Lee, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having us on. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, great talking to you. And to our listeners, do make sure to check out their podcast, Infectious Historians. I can assure you both hosts are quite contagious. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Public Historians at Work. You can show your support for this podcast and the Center for Public History through a donation at giving.uh.edu slash public history. For more information about the diverse work of the Center for Public History, find us online at uh.edu slash class slash cph or on Facebook and Twitter at UHCP History. Remember, we are all keepers of our history.